Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Eli Dorado, a senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University and a leading thinker and scholar focused on innovation and progress. He completed his PhD under the supervision of economist Tyler Cowan, a past Hub Dialogues guest, and like Cowan, he's become a powerful voice for a vision and policy agenda dedicated to ending the great stagnation. I'm grateful to speak with him today about various topics concerning innovation and progress, including some of the technological areas where he's bullish that we're starting to see major developments. Eli, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Uh, My pleasure, Sean. Great to be with you. Let's start with a question of biography, if that's okay. What is it about you and your background that's responsible for your interest in innovation progress and what one might even describe as futurism? Well, I come by it honestly, I'll tell you that. I think I've been interested in uh, some some mix of, you know, uh, economics and technology and politics since I was uh, a kid. I remember reading the uh, World Almanac when I was nine years old and looking at like per capita GDP statistics and sort of charting out the growth rate uh, of what I could expect, you know, when I was a, when I was an adult. So so just as, as long as I can remember, I've, I've enjoyed tinkering with technology and, and uh, opening up computers and other devices and figuring out how they work. And, um, and yeah, I just, I, I think it's, I, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because uh, when, when you're asked, you know, as a kid, what, what can you be when you grow up? You know, there's, there's only so many tracks, right? You can be like a fireman or a dentist or whatever, but there's no track really for, for what I do. And, uh, you know, I'm really pleased with how things have turned out because I, I think it, like little kid version of me would have been uh, thrilled. <laughs> Let me follow up with a contextual question that, that will form the kind of foundation for a lot of our conversation. What is the great stagnation? And what do you think caused it? And how will we know if we're out of it? Um, I think of this great stagnation as mainly, I think of it as a slowdown in total factor productivity growth. So maybe we'll start by just talking about what total factor productivity is, right? So though I think of it as just how good is the economy at turning inputs into outputs? Right. How, how good is it for taking like a fixed basket of inputs? Like how much, how much output can you make with, with that fi- fixed basket of diverse inputs? And, um, you know, we, we see in the aggregate data, you know, for the U.S. from about 1920 to the early 1970s, that, that number, uh, total factor productivity, it grew annually about 2%. So 2% year after year after year. And that's really what made America the richest country uh, on the planet and the most powerful country on the planet is 2%, right? Just cumul- you know, cumulatively over that period of time. And then in the early 1970s, 2% stopped. 2% was over. It went down to, you know, 
had a had a brief resurgence in the sort of like late late nineties, uh, early two thousands, and uh, and actually since two thousand five, it's been about half a percent or less. So it's it's really uh, a kind of a deep. We're kind of in a deep stage of, of stagnation at this point. So I, you know, my, what I think of is um, we'll know it's over when we get back to two percent year after year, right? Like that's that to me is the is the answer. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm very focused on on you know at least that one uh, that one number um, rather than just saying like oh it'll happen when we get AI or it'll happen when we have autonomous vehicles or or whatever it, like let, let's let's reserve judgment until the numbers uh, start getting back to where they should be. What do you think is behind the productivity paradox concerning modern computing seemingly disappointing effect on productivity? Is that it takes a while for us to figure out how to optimize general purpose technology? Is it regulatory impediments? How can everyone have supercomputers in their pockets and still be stuck in a period of sustained stagnation? I think of it as mainly about just diminishing returns to one sector. So, um, so if you have really rapid growth in one sector, what does that do? That lowers the cost of goods in that sector and it raises the cost of goods in every other sector, right? And, and during the sort of the earlier period of, of great uh, American growth from 1920 to 1973 or so, you know, we had, you know, Robert Gordon calls it five great inventions, you know, so you had this sort of broad-based growth that was in, you know, internal combustion engines and petrochemicals and uh, urban sanitation and you know, electricity and telecommunications. And you had this broad, uh, multi-sector uh, sort of led growth. And when you only have innovation in digital technology, well, it turns out like most of the world is still the world of atoms. You know, we still uh, mostly live in a, a physical world. And so there's only so much you can do, I think. So so it's just, um, it isn't matched by an increasing level of permissiveness of what we can even use the digital technology for. So, so we can't, you know, I think one example that I, I really find striking is, you know, I thought, you know, sort of being, being an early adopter of the internet in the 1990s, I thought, you know, surely real estate cartels are going away, right? We're going to be able to like list your house online and it's going to be free to transact you know, a house, but like, here we are still in 2023. And uh, real estate commissions are still pretty high and, and in absolute terms higher than they've ever been. So, um, so, so it's, you know, I think we just haven't made the uh, adjustments that would let allow digital technology to even work in, in, in sort of like the rest of the economy. Yeah, that's a great segue to my next question. As you sort of alluded, your Twitter bio says Adam's not bits. Which is an idea also broadly associated with Peter Thiel. What does it mean? And in broad terms, what should we be doing to extend progress from the world of bits to the world of atoms? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot we could do. Um, and I think, but I think it's actually quite challenging. So I think the biggest obstacle to progress in the world of bits is actually comes at the level of deployment. So it's not at the level of, you know, basic R&D or, you know, sort of engineering a sort of proof concept. It's, it's really at the level of, you know, how do we deploy inventions at scale? And, you know, if, if you think about, you know, even the great inventions that Robert Gordon talked about, they, those were deployed at scale. The automobile needed a, a national highway system, right? The, 
um, you know, electricity grid needed a rollout of, uh, of, of, you know, power lines that did not happen by itself. And I think that that's, that's the area where we have most failed is we make it, made it hard to, to deploy, um, you know, new, new systems, uh, at scale through, you know, um, laws that require a lot of, you know, public consultations and, and that take years to, to sort of, to go through, through, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer in safety regulation, but not safety theater regulation. So I think that there's, uh, you know, to, to a considerable extent, a lot of the safety that we have is, is not, um, is, it's not real. Um, and, and other kinds of laws, uh, especially like make work laws, right? Laws that say, you know, you can't actually do this because someone would, would lose their job. Those three things that, that there are costs to innovation and disruption. And those costs include that somebody might be inconvenienced, somebody might get hurt, and somebody might lose their job. And if we're not willing to bear those costs, then we're not going to get a lot of deployment and disruption in the economy. So I think that's, to me, that's the that's at the root of it is we we've, we've become unwilling to bear bear the costs of, uh, of you know, essentially doing great things. Let me ask a wonky policy question before we get into your analysis on sectors and technologies where we may be poised to see significant progress. Should government policy prioritize incremental innovation or breakthrough innovation? Or is that even the right way to think about the role of public policy? I'm going to have to say both, right? Uh, like we should, we should be doing both. I think that it's different levels of uh, government doing different things. So I think there's definitely a basic research function of government. And I'm happy to see, uh, you know, a lot of money go into basic research. But I think at that level, uh, you know, when, when you're spending the dollars on basic research, it really should be bold um, and go after, um, you know, big game changing uh, innovations uh, in, in sort of pushing, pushing the limits of, of science and, uh, and really targeting uh, innovations that could be transformative if, if they ever, ever got to full scale. Um, at the level of, you know, we have to regulate, you know, uh, transportation infrastructure or whatever. You know, let's just let's just, you know, basic competence is basically, I think, all we really need there. And and it doesn't have to be sort of a grandiose vision. It just needs to be effective and and do a good job. So so I you know I would say you know it depends on on what level you're talking about. Uh, it, it, are you talking about like the, the actual regulator or the the sort of the science funding agency? I'm afraid I lied. Let me ask one more question about the great stagnation and its factors, including the role for public policy. That may even serve as a segue into your thinking analysis on new sources of progress. Why did the U.S. government stop the space shuttle program? And do you believe that space travel has the potential to be the source of progress into the future? Well, the space shuttle was, um, you know, kind of a failure as a as a program, right? They they had five orbiters that they built, and two of them died in catastrophic, or blew, you know, blew up in catastrophic accidents, one on launch and one on reentry. Um, and the cost was never good, right? The cost it was incredibly expensive launch vehicle and um and and just never really um reached the vision of like you know full reusability for for the vehicle right the vehicle the the orbiter was of course reusable after you know a lot of overhauls but the booster you know was was never reusable yeah so so i think that the the space shuttle was you know kind of a failure even though it was sort of like the symbol of of um, american you know dominance in space for a while but it just it was not a good 
program. So it, it was canceled because ultimately, I think, because of you know, lack of safety and, and, and economics. What makes, uh, what makes space viable is full reusability and just, just doing it over and over again and having a very high cadence of, of launches. And, uh, you know, I think we're starting to see, um, you know, that with SpaceX, we're seeing it demonstrated with SpaceX. I think we're seeing the rest of the industry sort of buy into that model, that that's, that's really how we're going to do it. And if we can get, um, if we can get the cost of space launch down to, you know, uh, a, I'd say a double digit number of dollars per kilogram launched to low Earth orbit, which is kind of where, you know, under $100 a kilogram to, to low Earth orbit. You know, that that would be, I think, a game changer and would allow us to start doing a lot of interesting things in space. And, you know, in, the, in sort of the, in the long run, you know, most of the universe is out there, right? Most of the universe is, is, is not here on Earth. And, you know, it would be uh, it would be a shame to be confined only to one planet and to only, um, you know, only only be able to benefit from the resources on one planet. Uh, when there's so many other resources uh, in space, and uh, you know, it will take a long time to to fully realize that vision. I think, but but I you know, I hope that's where we're going as a species. Eli, one of the reasons you're so interesting is that you have a deep knowledge of innovation and progress across various sectors and technologies. You're something of an expert on geothermal and supersonic flight and virtually everything in between. You've written two comprehensive essays on possible areas of progress in the past few years. The first, Notes on Technology in the 2020s, was published at your Substack in late 2020. And the second, The New Productivity Revolution, was published in City Journal in spring 2021. What were you trying to achieve in these essays, which I would highly recommend, by the way? I would hesitate to ascribe any grand strategy to, you know, definitely not the first one. Um, so, so I mean, literally, uh, I think that the first one, uh, Notes on Technology in the 2020s, was just... Uh, a friend of mine asked me to write it up, right? Like he was just interested in my thoughts and was like, "Hey, you know, you should write up your your thoughts on kind of what what are the what are the possible sources for growth." And I kind of uh, just took him up on it and said, "Okay, sure, I'll, I'll I'll put these thoughts down." And um and I did that and you know covered a covered a, a wide array of of areas, um and and uh, yeah and, and and in City Journal I. Uh, just kind of, kind of wrote a, a piece on sort of like three things, three areas where I think we're we are starting to see some some progress potentially break through, right? And 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 those are biotech and geothermal and and space. So um, with with biotech, you know, I'm just so impressed by what's going on in uh, our biology labs today. I mean, the 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 scientists in these labs they're basically like wizards. Um, they can do incredible things they you know of course gene editing we all we all know about but but things like grow organisms you know control like sort of the kind of growth that they do like there's a um there's a scientist that can grow worms with two heads um or you know or or zero heads or you know however many heads you want um and it's just it's incredibly impressive and i think that the gap between what we see in biotech you know in in bio, biology research let's say and the actual medicine Right, it's just so large that I I kind of see it as an area that that has so much potential. Um, and geothermal energy is to me incredibly exciting because of just the staggering size of the resource. So if you if you kind of add up like all the geothermal energy in Earth's crust, it's you know it's something like forty times bigger than all the fissionable material on Earth, 
combined, plus all the fossil fuels, plus you know uh, a bunch of other a few other you know odds and ends. So it's just you know just such a staggeringly huge resource that um, it seems you know almost inevitable that we'll eventually tap it, especially since actually getting it is like technically like um, you know we'll we'll take some advances, but uh, but it's not like conceptually that complex. It's just like literally you just have to drill deep enough. And, um, and, and we'll get there. And then in, in space that, you know, we already talked about it, but uh, reusability is just uh, driving costs down and down and down. And, you know, I really think about uh, trade with space as like, using the gravity model. So this is like the most successful empirical economic model of all time is, is, is called the gravity model. And it just says, uh, the, the amount of trade between two, two places on Earth uh, is propor- is inversely proportional to the costs of 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 you know getting goods and people between those places, and if we can get the costs uh, of getting goods and people into space, you know, down by you know another order or two of magnitude, then that is going that should radically increase how much presence we have in space, and it's going to change uh, a lot of what we do. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. If I can ask follow-up questions on biotechnology and geothermal. First on biotechnology, what explains the gap between the tremendous progress in biology and its transfer into market outcomes is it a market failure or is it a government failure you know i've been trying to figure this out i think that one thing that is clear is that the cost of clinical trials have gone up right so so uh you know it used to be uh you know ten thousand dollars a patient that you enrolled in a clinical trial and now it's five hundred thousand dollars a patient uh and, and you know so 50x increase now is that uh you know entirely because of regulation or entirely because of the market probably it's a mix of the two or the two interacting and you know it's not it's not obvious uh to me how you fix it um probably having some like lower level of given the dysfunction right some lower level of regulatory requirement is probably warranted but i don't think it's uh entirely the regulation i do think there's something uh kind of dysfunctional in the industry as well and and that is i mean from a from a total factor productivity perspective right like that is uh, there's a huge obstacle because uh, drugs are unreasonably effective at producing health, right? Like it just, you know, I think it costs, you know, three, we save a life for every $3,000 or something that we spend on drugs, which is just, you know, the kind of numbers you don't see really in a lot of other places. And if you could replace, you know, a, a surgical procedure or some other kind of medical procedure with, you know, where you're p- taking highly paying highly paid trained professionals and like very expensive equipment and replace that with a few pills like that is going to win every time so um so it's really important to get the the cost down for um you know for uh getting 
uh, drug new drugs to market, especially. And on geothermal, pardon me, for me and listeners who aren't as familiar with the technology, what are the potential applications? How can progress in geothermal change our lives? Yeah, I mean, so so geothermal has been around for, you know, in some form for over 100 years. Uh, it started in Italy was the first place that they actually did it to uh, harness, you know, to produce electrons. Um, you know, it, it provides the majority of the power for Iceland, right? So so uh, it's a, uh, Iceland is a country that has done it already at scale. And the idea behind sort of new dr- geothermal drilling technologies is, you know, essentially, if we go deep enough anywhere, it's basically like Iceland. Right. So so if we if, you know, wherever you live, if you just drilled a little, you know, deeper, like, um, you know, say seven to 20 kilometers of depth. Um, th- those are super hot conditions down there. And we could we could use those that that hot rock. We could send water down and then back up, uh, you know, after it, after it harnesses that heat, it comes up as superheated steam and it could be run through a, a turbine, just like the turbines that are used at you know, coal plants or nuclear plants or, or whatever. Um, and so you, um, you know, you could produce, you know, basically unlimited uh, amounts of uh, electricity at, you know, what I think hopefully is, is a pretty reasonable cost and it's completely carbon free and it's base load. And so it doesn't vary by time of day or by, you know, what the weather is. Um, and, and so it's, it's kind of the Holy grail of, of energy because it, um, because it's 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 super abundant. It's um, you know, it's it's reliable and it's cheap and it's no no zero carbon emissions. So so there's not really a lot not to like about it. And uh, you know, we could have uh, we could certainly decarbonize very quickly, but we could also increase our energy use and and not not just not just uh, you know, be satisfied with uh, you know a decarbonized economy, which would be great, but also uh, have a more abundant. Uh, vision of a decarbonized future. If I understand correctly, you live in the Washington, D.C. area and work for a center at Utah State University, which means that you have direct insight into remote work and its potential to decouple where we work and live. What do you think of its potential? Are you bullish or bearish? Great question. I, uh, I was also remote in my previous job where I worked for a company in Denver and, and lived in, in the D.C. area, was the first employee in, in the D.C. area. I am a uh, probably less bullish than a lot of people. I, I think uh, being in person with people really matters. Uh, um, I, I just literally was in Utah last week. So uh, it was just so refreshing to, to see my colleagues uh, who were there. Uh, you know, in, in, in my previous job where I worked in the private sector, I, I flew uh, to Denver every month. So it was, a, it was truly like a high cadence uh, sort of commute. Situation, and I think it's it's all important because the bandwidth of that face to face interaction is just uh, is just so much higher, and the sort of informal um, connections are also very high. I think that for knowledge work, you know, you know, so having been remote for uh, almost six years now, uh, you know, for knowledge work, I it, it can work pretty well if you are a uh, you know highly motivated uh, person with you know like a lot of sort of internal drive to, to accomplish certain goals, um, it, it can work. Um, if you're, if you're either not as motivated or your employees are not as motivated, you know, it doesn't work as well. Or if you, um, and I think also if you're working on, 
uh, you know, certain kinds of, you know, hands-on work, right? Engin- any kind of engineering work. Uh, it really matters that uh, you have those high bandwidth conversations a lot more frequently. So, um, so I think I think it um, it, it has a role certainly, uh, but but I, I'm not. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a game changer for the economy. There's a growing policy and political interest in so-called moonshots. Do you think moonshots are a useful framework for supporting and organizing? big scientific initiatives or does it risk causing more harm than good i don't think there's any uh there's too much harm in in, in going after a moonshot so i certainly think it's good to have some uh i think if anything maybe we've we've diluted the term a little bit so that we, we kind of use use the word moonshot for something that is actually not as challenging as going to the moon uh, you know think about 1969 when we actually landed on the moon it was only 66 years after the invention of flight at all. You know, so it's it's just incredible the rate of progress and, and the ambition of that effort. And I, I don't know that we have very many uh, things that are sort of equivalent today um, at all. But I, I, I do think it is good for people to organize around ambitious goals. Um, and and um, it would be good if we did that more, I think. I should just clarify, Eli, to the extent to which there are concerns, it's the tendency, as you say, to overuse the term and not think critically about the particular conditions that were present in the Moon Project, which made it so compelling a kind of collective vision to work towards. And so I think, yeah, there is a risk that we start to dilute the concept, or as I say, that we don't think enough about the conditions that made it such a unique collective project. Yeah, yes, I would agree with that. And then, um, I would add that sort of the the negative that I really see from the Apollo program was that it we kind of stopped it. We kind of declared victory, planted the flag, declared victory, and then didn't go back ever again. It was completely unsustainable. And so nobody has been to the moon since the early 1970s. So almost 50 years of just absence from the moon entirely. And, and uh, only a handful of people who have ever been on the moon are still alive. So it's... Um, you know, it's really uh, in th- in that sense, like sort of the 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 flag planting aspect of it, and and then you know leave g- letting it go. I, I think is the other really um, unfortunate aspect of it. Let me ask a separate but related question. Just as there's growing political interest in the concept of moonshots, there seems to be growing interest around the world in exporting or, or rather importing the DARPA model. You know, we have something in a new agency in the UK. Uh, the Canadian government has just announced the creation of a new innovation agency. Do you think DARPA can be replicated or are there unique particularities of the American defense industry that makes its its application to other sectors or technologies or collective challenges more limited? Well, I'm not even sure today's DARPA is the same as the sort of DARPA in the in the good old days. So, so there's definitely some possibility that um, that it was like sort of a, a time and place kind of thing. But I, but in general, I'm I'm pleased to see people experimenting and including trying new, you know new DARPAs, uh, new ARPAs for things. Um, and you know, in addition to the ones you mentioned, uh, my friend Ben Reinhardt has a sort of he's created a private ARPA, right? Speculative Technologies, uh, which is trying to just as on sort of as a charity uh do projects that are too risky even for governments to do right like that it's so it's it's so um 
uh, it's such a bold uh, vision. But but yeah, I think I think that um, the innovation system broadly needs a lot of experimentation. I think that that's where you know sort of if if we're talking about like you know what is the deficiency of sort of like the U.S. research system? I think it's like too much money is all funneled through NIH, right? It's like one giant uh, agency. It's not quite a monolith, but it's it's um, pretty concentrated in sort of how the how the funding is allocated. And we just need more experimentation and and to see how much, uh, you know, what 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 other other models work, and then the ones that work, we can scale up and give a little bit more money to, and and take away a little bit of money from the ones that aren't working as well, and and sort of that dynamic feedback process, I think, has not really existed. So I'm I'm really pleased to see uh, experimentation with including with with sort of ARPA models. What about the net zero target? Do you think it's a useful framework for collective progress and energy transition? and other trends needed to lower global carbon emissions. I'm okay with the target. In general in climate I I feel like we're not just not we're not trying very hard, you know, in the sense of we actually have a lot of tools that we need to uh, to address the climate challenge and it's mostly getting stuck on things like deployment. So, you know, in terms of you know, certainly in clean energy, we have a lot a lot of uh, a lot of tools at our disposal to to do and it's, it's we've just made it very hard to deploy them. And then in sort of carbon carbon removal, um, you know, there's there's a, a an amazing uh, array of tools. Uh, one, the one that I'm most fond of is uh, enhanced weathering, which uses a, a mineral called olivine to react with the atmosphere and turn CO2 into essentially turning the carbon atom in CO2 into bicarbonate ions that would then uh, deacidify the oceans as well. So so it's really it's a it's a it's a twofer. And sort of, you know, that that kind of system would be, you know, if we if we tr- actually try to deploy such a thing at scale, it could potentially be very, uh, very cost effective way of hitting net zero. And, you know, with no with no new unobtainable technology, like with today's, uh, you know, rock crushing and drilling technology, you know, another another example is uh, is uh, solar radiation management, right? Like like we we basically have the tools to cool the earth's climate if we if we wanted to do it but it's extremely controversial on a sort of like you know on a deployment level you know we it's actually to some extent it's verboten to even do experiments uh with it uh although some of those are now happening and which i think is a good thing um and 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 you know if the experiments pan out i think uh you know we should talk about you know is this is this a good way to to you know, control the sort of the thermostat of the climate. I don't know if you can discern in my last several questions, Eli, a kind of underlying idea about the political economy appeal of different concepts and ideas and arguments to build a constituency for a progress agenda. You know, I observe politics in Canada, the U.S., and elsewhere, and see the political fecundity of nostalgia. And no one really trying to build uh, political support for an aspirational pro-progress vision and agenda. I, I don't know if you agree with that assessment. And maybe you just put it to you. Why? I-, I-, I just can't help but think that there is an underlying political market demand for your vision and agenda. And it's partly reflected, for instance, in consistent polling that shows that people are down on the future. And I think that's at least in part because no one is presenting a positive vision of the future. Why do you think that is? I think that a, a big chunk of the problem is that 
it's actually um, non-obvious and hard how to actually do that. Uh, I think that 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 um, sort of the sort of the market for political optimism in the past has been as you know it's come from either you know sort of the left like wanting to sort of uh, undergo certain particular programs that are you know big government programs or as from the right um wanting to do wanting to say that everything is fine that 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 um that there's no need for government to get involved because things are so much better than they used to be and they're going to continue getting better in kind of an indefinite way right in a way that that doesn't re- doesn't require any specifics of thought and so on and so you know a uh, a uh, a vision of the future that's like um you know steeped in technological reality and and sort of the ability to actually think through how are we going to engineer this and so on i think that there is um there is a uh desire for that and it's you know it shouldn't be ideological it should be based on you know like we just like or the ideology is itself that like we want to grow and we want to do uh great things as as a society and as humans and uh and, and it's not going to start from the perspective of, you know, we, we want a government program to do X or we don't need a government program because everything is fine. And um, so starting from the point of like, wh- you know, what is it that we want you know, what, when, and, and trying to make it as uh, realistic and tractable as, as, as possible, I think is that is it is uh, I, I have noticed like an uptake in that. And but it isn't something that has really been tried in, in the past. Final question. Do you think we're going to break out of the 2% trap? And if so, what are the major determinants? If it's a lack of society-wide urgency, as you sort of alluded, how do we solve for that? Yeah, I think it's entirely up to us whether or not we we get there. You know, in sort of my writing and in my work in general, I, I've really taken the strategy of trying to convince you know, elites in society. I don't think like, you know, I, th- I don't think engaging with the culture war or kind of the, or the issues that are, that appeal to like sort of, you know, rank and file voters. I don't think of that as, is very helpful at all. And so I've just been trying to write for sort of other thought leaders and try to sort of build sort of elite consensus that this is where we need to go. And sort of my model of the political system is, you know, that for the sort of the culture war issues or the, the stuff that normal voters care about, like you basically have to give the voters what they want. Um, there's not really in a democracy another alternative. But then outside of those issues, I think elites have a lot of, of sway, right? And, 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 they can, and they can move things in one direction or, or another. And I think that is the model that makes sense to me for how we would, how we would get there. So that's, that's how I've been trying to approach it. Well, if people want to understand how we get there, I'd strongly recommend they read the writings and thinking of Eli Dorado, which you can find at his personal website, elidorado.com. Eli, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. It's been my pleasure, Sean. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. 
I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.